we are continuing our study of Psalm 119, our summer sermon series. This psalm is a, really a love song, a song of praise for God's law. But what we're kind of staring into is that it's really an expression of praise and a psalm all about God's word as a whole and how all of his word is an encouragement to us. Psalm 119 is actually the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, the book of praise songs, but it's also the longest chapter in the Bible. In fact, it's longer than many books of the Bible. And if you've been here, we've said several times that this is a carefully constructed acrostic poem where there's sections of eight verses and each section starts with the next letter of the alphabet. Now, the Bible, though, wasn't written in English, so it is written in Hebrew, and it's the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And again, I just really like seeing it in Hebrew. So this is actually the passage we're reading today. And in Hebrew, you read from right to left. So if you look in the picture, if you look at the right, you see something that almost looks like a T, but there's a little slant there. That's the Hebrew letter Zion. And then in the next section, it almost looks like the sign for pi. And that's the Hebrew letter het. And that's the section we're looking at today, those two. The past two weeks, though, Pastor Tom has been speaking from Psalm 119. He's spoken about how God's word is sufficient, how it is a comfort to us. And he also talked about how we need to depend on the Lord to understand the scriptures, but at the same time, we need to know the scriptures in order to live for the Lord. And that idea of living for the Lord and getting comfort from his word is what we're going to continue discussing today. I know that we're in summer. It's a time of vacation where sometimes we take a step back, but that doesn't mean that hardship takes a break. Trials and hardship and suffering continue every season of the year. The difficult times still come. But God's word is a source of comfort for us. When we're suffering, when it feels like the whole world is against us, or when we feel alone. And we're not just called to receive that comfort from God, but we respond to it as well. We take action. Because God comforts us, we can know him. We should obey him. We should praise him. And we don't do that alone, but with all of his people. That's what we're going to look at today. So if you're not there, I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 119. Today, we are in verses 49 through 64. Psalm 119, 49 through 64. If you want to use the blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, I believe it's on page 608. But otherwise, we'll find it in whatever you have, or we'll also put it up on the screen. And once you are there, Psalm 119, starting at verse 49, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. Again, Psalm 119, starting in verse 49, and may say Zion above it. Verse 49, our author says, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Oh, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O oh Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. 
And then verse 57, the het section, says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the comfort that is to be found in your word. Thank you, God, that your comfort comes to us in our suffering, when we feel like the whole world is against us, when we are lonely and alone, your comfort is there. Thank you for providing comfort. I pray, God, though, that as we enjoy your comfort, it would spur us to action, that we would turn to you and know you, that we would obey you, do what you have said, and that we may praise you for who you are and what you have done. God, thank you that this isn't a journey we walk alone, but that we walk with brothers and sisters in Christ. We walk with your people. Thank you, God, that you have brought us together on this journey, not by our might or our power, but by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this first section of eight verses, this is where we have this word of comfort, this word of comfort and encouragement to us. It gives us a word of comfort from the Lord. And this comfort comes to us in at least three different circumstances. So if you have the outline that you should have received on your way in, it's the first we'll look at this word of comfort, and where does this comfort come to us? Well, first the psalmist tells us when we are suffering, when we are suffering. As the psalmist remembers God, he asks God to remember him. He asks God to remember what he has promised in his word. This is what verse 49 says. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Now, this is a poem. He's not saying that God forgets things, that God forgets his Bible or, or what he said. No, he's asking God to be faithful to what he has promised. And it's interesting that this verse, verse 49, is the only prayer request he has in this prayer, in this first section here. His only prayer to God is, God, remember what you have said and what you have promised to do. That's the only thing he feels he needs to ask. He just needs to say, God, if you're faithful to do what you have said, then all my other needs will be met. In many ways, he's building on what he said last week. You should have heard this last week, verses 41 through 43. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Because then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. His trust, his hope is according to God's promise. Yes, he's going through hardship, but God brings stability into his life through his word. One scholar, Stephen Ewell, says the way the psalmist maintains his footing is by looking to God's word. 
when he seems off balance, when life is, is rocking him back and forth, he maintains his footing by seeing comfort in God's word. His word gives him hope in his suffering. We're reading from the English Standard Version, but in the New Living Translation, verse 49 says, remember your promise to me, it is my only hope. Which as a Star Wars fan reminded me of a certain line from a particular movie, uh, you're my only hope. But here we're talking about something that's much more true, much more real and lasting, a hope that endures through every circumstance. As he says in verse 50, his comfort in this affliction is that God's promise gives him life. Yes, there's affliction, there's suffering, there's trouble and hardship in his life. He'll talk about this a lot in this psalm. At least six more times after this, he'll bring up this idea of affliction and suffering. He doesn't deny the reality that we live in a world that's often hard. We experience suffering and pain and trouble, but his hope is that God's word revives him. It preserves him. It gives him life. Paul would write about this in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, he says, whatever was written in the former days, whatever was written in the Old Testament, that's for our instruction, that through endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. We find hope through the encouragement in God's word. God's word points to how God has been faithful. And if we're living for him, we, we see evidence of that faithfulness around us. We may see that God says he'll answer prayers, and we pray, and we see God answers prayer. We see God calls us to grow closer to him, and we seek to grow. We find, hey, I'm looking more and more like God. He says he will be with us, and in moments of hardships, we enjoy the blessing of his presence. It may be hard to see at times, but, friends, God is faithful to his word, and that can give us confidence even when we are suffering. Another psalm, Psalm 71, says, You, God, you're the one who've made me see many troubles and calamities, but you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. He knows God is in control. He knows God is the one who brings all these things into his life. And so he says, God, you are the one who will bring me up but I think that there's a challenge in there for each of us because what is the ultimate source of comfort for us in our life? When those trials, those hardships comes, what is it that we turn to in that moment? Is it maybe we think we make enough money that, that then, okay, I'll be at a, a place where I don't have to worry about that. Maybe there's a particular relationship. Oh, I just need to talk to this person, then everything will be good. Or maybe the idea of a relationship. If somebody was in my life, then I wouldn't struggle as much here. Maybe we turn to a form of entertainment or recreation, a drug, or, or sort of something else. There's just something we turn to. That is where I go when I have need and struggle. But for our psalmist here, he turns to God's word. Like maybe a child that trips and falls, he runs to his father. He runs to his heavenly father in his moments of suffering and affliction. Another scholar, Danny Aiken, said, suffering is not fun. It is, however, the place we discover that our God is sufficient, that he is enough. It's in suffering we discover, wait, God is all I need. I don't need these other things. Not that they're bad. It's not that it's, not, it's wrong to enjoy them, but we realize, no, God is the one I need in these moments of struggle. He is the comfort 
in suffering. So God's word is a comfort to us when we are suffering, but the Bible is also God's word of comfort when the world is against us. He's not only suffering, he's suffering because it seems like everyone is against him. He speaks of the insolent, the arrogant, the proud, those who do not respect God, those who mock, deride, ridicule his followers. As he says in verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. It seems there's people who are making fun of him for following God, saying you shouldn't trust in God, it's not working out for you. But the truth is, as he knows, is God has his interest at heart, and these people do not. Uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, God's law is our highway of peace and safety. Those who would laugh us out of it wish us no good. If someone tries to mock your faith, mock your confidence in God, they do not have your best interest at heart. But when it's many people doing that, that can still be hard because it does seem like the whole world is against us. That's how the psalmist feels. He mentions this idea that people are all around him mocking him several times throughout this psalm, yet he continues to faithfully follow God. For example, near the end of the psalm, this is, we're we're in what, verses 51, eventually we'll get to verse 157, and he says, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimony. And friends, if you feel alone, if you feel the world is against you for holding your, your faith, you are in common company with many of God's people throughout history. We read about it in the Bible. We can see it in those who have followed him in the church. If you were here last week, Pastor Tom spoke about a church leader named Athanasius, which is kind of a weird name, but that's what he, he went by. Athanasius was arguing against people who held to a view called Arianism, is not a phrase we use, but Pastor Tom explained it's very similar to Jehovah's Witnesses of today. They do not feel that Jesus was fully God. They think it was created by God. Athanasius spoke against them. He said their view was wrong, and we would say by the testimony of Scripture, Athanasius was correct, but his view was not always the most popular in that day. And sometimes those Arians had more followers on their side. And in fact, one time a colleague actually told him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius responded this way in Latin, Athanasius contra mundum, which translated means then Athanasius is against the world. He knew that he was faithful to scripture and he knew that he had to stand against the world. He had the attitude that our psalmist has here of those who are deriding him, mocking him, He also had the attitude that we see in Job. If you go in the Bible to the book of Job, when he's being mocked by his friends, he responds this way, my foot has held fast to his, to God's steps. I have kept his way and I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Where does this confidence and courage in the face of mocking come from? What where does this kind of faithfulness arise out of? Well, he said, tells us in verse 52, he says, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. His comfort in the face of these adversaries is remembering what God has done in the past, his rules, his judgments, because God's judgments and actions are always perfect. 
God has shown himself strong in the past. I know God has done this. I've read about it in his words, so I know that he will deliver me in the future. And yes, people are mocking him, but they want to push him away from God, but instead they push him towards God. He goes closer and closer to him. He knows that God is more than enough, even if those enemies around him do not know God. They are the ones who forsake, abandon, reject God's law. They fill his heart, verse 53 tells us, with hot anger and indignation. He's angry when he sees sin. And this is a response we see elsewhere in the Bible. You may remember the story of Moses. Moses is up on a mountain talking to God. He's receiving the Ten Commandments from God. But when he comes down, he sees that his people are worshiping an idol. And this is how he responds. As soon as he came near to the camp, he saw the calf they were worshiping and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Our psalmist is having the same reaction in verse 53, this hot indignation seizing him because these wicked forsake God's law. And friends, seeing sin and rebellion against God in the world should make us angry because sin is rebellion against God. Yes, even if somebody sins against you personally, they are ultimately sinning against the king and ruler, the final judge of the universe, our God. If we're God's people, we should respect our king. We should take offense when his rule is attacked and rejected. I was really reflecting on on this, seeing this description there, because we don't often talk this way, this hot indignation seizing him when he sees sin. It made me reflect on the fact that God's created each of us differently. And if we know God, we have a relationship with him, that sometimes there's particular sins that provoke this anger, that we are offended on behalf of God, that this is not what God wants. For some people, maybe it's seeing unnecessary death in the world, or seeing suffering may provoke that anger. Some are very attuned to honesty, and lying provokes that this is not God's desire. Or maybe it's a type of sexual sin. I know for me, just speaking for me personally, the issue that really makes me angry is when I see racism in the world, when I see the image of God denied in someone based off the color of their skin or their culture. That is the easiest way to make Pastor John angry. But in this, we see that different one of us have different issues that will rise to that hot indignation or anger. And we understand that while all of it is offense to God, somebody may feel more strongly about one particular thing than another. But at the same time, it's not just anger that's here. This hot indignation is also mixed with sorrow, or some translations have horror in this verse. Because yes, we see that sin, but we know that an eternal judgment awaits those who persist in sin. And that is a fate that is not to be wished on anyone. He'll say later in this psalm that my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Friends, we should want people to know God. We should want people to live for Him. It should break our heart when people are not honoring God. So here in this verse, I'm really, really just unpacking this hot indignation or anger here. I'm saying it's good to be angry at sin, to feel anger that God is not being followed, but that anger should not lead us to think we're better than somebody else. So I don't do that, so I'm better than them. I'm closer to God. 
Because you remember what I said, that God has tuned our conscience differently. One issue may provoke you to anger, and it might not provoke someone else. So you may see in them the sin that makes you angry, but they may see in you the sin that makes them angry. And the result of this sin is a world that is against God, and that may also be against us, but there's comfort to be found. Another Old Testament book is the book of Ecclesiastes, and it just speaks honestly to the rebellion against God we see in the world around us. Why does it happen? Well, the author says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because somebody can do wrong against God and get away with it, they are set to do it. They keep doing it. But the author says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. In the same way, our psalmist feels this anger. He sees the world is against him, but he's comforted that God is with his faithful people. And he kind of steers into that in the last part of this section where he talks about how God's word brings comfort when we are alone. Not only when the world is against us, knowing that he stands with us, but also when we feel completely alone, he is still bringing comfort even then. He says that God's statutes have been the theme and subject of his songs of praise wherever he goes, wherever he lives. That's verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojournings. When he sees God's faithfulness, he sings, he praises, That's why we take time to do that at the beginning of the service. Our faith is a singing faith. We're grateful for God, dependent on Him, because we know that this place we are now is not our permanent home. I like how he calls it here. He calls it a house of my sojourn. He's speaking about life. He's saying, my life is just a house of sojourning. It's a pilgrimage. It's not somewhere I'm staying forever. This life is temporary. I'm just passing through. In Psalm 39, another psalmist says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you. I'm a guest like all my fathers. I don't live here, God. This isn't my home, so I need your help. And this singing, this praise helps us pass our short time here, keeps our focus on the one who will be with us when this journey is over. So that's why we sing when we're together, but we can also sing when we're alone, which seems to be what he's speaking about here, because he turns to talking about how he's praising God in the night when he's probably alone. And times of difficulty are definitely a time to respond in praise to God. I know there was a time a few years ago I was going through a very difficult season, and I also was taking long car trips at that time, and I would use those times to sing praise to God. And it's still a habit I do sometimes. If I'm alone driving, I often put on a song of remember, songs of praise to Lord, particularly if I feel that loneliness. That's why in verse 55, he speaks about how he remembers God's name in the night and keeps his law. Because it's often at night when all the other noise quiets down that we feel that reality of loneliness of who we are before God. We may try to distract ourselves during the day with light and noise, TV things, but eventually it all goes off and we have that moment of stillness before God. 
And in that moment of loneliness, our psalmist finds comfort in God's word. And this need for comfort in the night, it, it shows up several times in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 42, it says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. Again, he's praising God through song at night, a prayer to the God of my life. Or maybe Psalm 63, he says, my soul will be satisfied as with rich and fat food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When does this happen? When he wakes up in the morning? No, when I remember you upon my bed. When I meditate, think about you in the deep watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I think this is an experience that all of us as humans can relate about, that moment where you realize it's just me here. And that's the moment that God's comfort can speak to us. In that moment, it is good, it is wise for us to meditate, think about who God is and what he has said about himself in his word. One pastor named William Plummer wrote about this. He said, there is never a time in which it is not proper to turn to God and think on his name, think about who he is. In the darkness of midnight, in the darkness of mental depression, in the darkness of outward providences, whatever's happening in the world, God is still a fitting theme. That's a reminder I know I, I need this week and now. Maybe it's a reminder you need as well. And I know it's been an experience of my life memory that came to me about this was a little over two years ago. I know we don't like to think about it, but do you remember the very early times when COVID was first coming and nobody really knew what was happening or what was going on? I remember there was one night where I was just thinking about it. What does it mean for me, my family? Well, what does this mean for the church? And I couldn't sleep at all. I was just thinking about going over it again and again and again. And so finally I got out of bed and I went into the living room and I didn't know what else to do. I, I just opened the Psalms. And I actually read about half the Psalms. I, I just couldn't come down until finally I was at a place where I could rest and sleep. That is the comfort God can provide through his word. And this meditating, thinking, remembering God, it motivates us to obey him, enjoy the blessing of a relationship with him. That's what verse 56 speaks about. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. This blessing of knowing God, living with him, has fallen to him, has become his, or your translation may have, this is my practice, this is how I spend my life, I live for the Lord, I keep his precepts. We see that the psalmist had comfort. He had the ability to sing to God. He had courage, even though the world was against him. He had hope from the Lord. Knowing God, living for him, even when he was alone, was a blessing and a comfort to the psalmist. Now, I know it's easy for me to stay up, stand up here and say that. In reality, it's, it's very difficult to be alone, whether it's alone just for a, a day, a week, a season, whether it's a time of years or, or decades. In that loneliness, it, it's, it's very hard to see the light. But, friends, God's word can provide comfort in that loneliness. This is the comfort God's word gives us. When we're suffering, when the world is against us, when we're alone, he is there. And so we should thank God for that comfort, but it's not just something that's there, amen, let's walk out the door. No, he calls us to respond to it. 
This is comfort from God's word, is comfort that leads to action. The next session we're going to talk about talks about action. How do we respond to God's comfort? What action should we take? Well, the first action he calls us to is to know God, to know God. If he has comforted us, if he's provided a way for comfort, then we should come to know him. As he says in verse 57, the Lord is my portion, or your translation may have, Lord, you are mine. That word portion has the idea like land may be divided, a property may be divided into certain sections. And in that way, the Lord has assigned a place for each of us. And if we know him, he has given us a relationship with him. Another Psalm, Psalm 16 says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Knowing God is the greatest inheritance that we could have. Because to have God is to have everything. Everything we could possibly want or desire is found in him. I didn't put this quote up here because uh, it was a longer one, so I'm just going to paraphrase it a little. But one pastor uh, named John Piper, he asked a question in one of his books about this. That is a question that still reverberates with me, that I still think about sometimes. The gist of the question is, if you could have all the blessings of heaven, if you could have perfect peace, perfect rest, if you could be with all of your family and friends forever, if you could have have joyful times and pleasantness and nothing bad ever again, if you could have all the blessings of heaven, but God was not there, would it be worth it? And we may want to jump immediately with, oh no, but if we think about it, sometimes that's what we long for most about eternity. Ah, a place to rest, a place of joy, a place to be with the people I love. Not that there's anything wrong with thinking that, but we miss that what makes heaven special aren't those blessings, but the fact that God is there. And we cannot be happy or satisfied without him. He is the only lasting portion that we have, that there is. It's only if we know him that we have that joy. And it's only if we know him that we want to obey him, that we want to keep his words, his law, and his commandments, which is what this psalm is about. And since the psalmist knows that he needs to know God, he speaks in verse 58, he entreats God's favor so that he can seek God's face. He wants God's blessings. He asks God to be gracious and merciful to him. He knows God is my portion. He's the only one who can provide what I need. So I need God to be gracious and merciful to me, to give me what only he can give. Stephen Ewell said again, his mercy is the only remedy for our misery. We may try to fill the emptiness in us with many other things, but it's only God's mercy that fills that hole. The psalmist here, he wants to know God more. And since he knows God, he wants to obey him and to follow him. But this is the crucial point. He must first know God if he is to follow God his word. If God's word of comfort is going to lead him to action, he needs to have a relationship with God. This is the great truth of scripture. It's not by obeying God that we get to him, but it's by knowing God that we are able to obey him. And we only 
know God, not through what we do or what we earn, but we only know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ was the one who lived perfectly. He was the one who lived the life we couldn't live. He's the one who died so that we could be restored to God, that we might know him. The way to know God is to turn away from the sin, the rebellion that we talked about that provokes anger, to turn away from that and instead trust in what he has done, to love him and his word. That is how we make God our portion, our satisfaction, our hope. If we know God through Christ, then and only then can we obey him. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you will seek him and seek to know him. And if you do, then we're able to obey him. This is the second action we can take because of God's comfort and grace. Verses 59 and 60 speak about this. The psalmist considers, he ponders, he thinks on his life, he thinks about how he lives, and he immediately turns to follow God's word. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. If he's straying from God, he does not hesitate, he does not delay, he immediately turns back to God. He's examined his life by God's word. He responds with obedience. It makes sense. It's how we should respond when we fall short and sin. When we realize I've turned away from God, we should turn immediately to him. This reminds me of the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. It's a son who leaves his father, pursues his own course of life, and finds himself in poverty and ruin. And look how Jesus describes him. He says, but when he came to himself when his brain started working and connecting. He said, well, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I perish here with hunger. Well, I will rise. I will go to my father. I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's the call for us when we sin, when we fall. Well, calls to turn away from that immediately and run to God. Obey him. Spurgeon says, we are too often in haste to sin. Oh, that we may be in a greater hurry to obey. Delay in sin, to stay in sin, that's an increase of sin. To be slow to keep the commands is really to break them. That's the opposite reaction our psalmist has. He says that when he thinks about it, he turns, he hastens, he does not delay. He obeys God's word. He has turned to God and he will not turn back. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's easy to say that, but that doesn't mean it's easy for him because look what happens immediately after that. In verse 61, the wicked enemies ensnare surround him. The cords of the wicked ensnare me, but his commitment is to not forget God's law. These same wicked people who were mocking him earlier are now either persecuting him or maybe they're enticing him to sin. He feels surrounded by evil, but he seeks to follow God, to remain firm and committed to him. This is a common prayer in the psalm. Psalm 140 says, guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who plan to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me. With cords, they've spread a net. Beside me, they've set snares. He calls out to God. He's also expressing, though, his commitment. His commitment is that even if 
They try to trap me, to force me into sin. He says, no, I will not forget your law. Even if they try to stop him from following God, he will continue to obey. He knows the truth that another person may tempt me, they may entice me, they may trick me, they may lie to me, but they cannot make me turn away from God. They can bribe and bully, but I am the one who chooses whether or not I live for the Lord. Thinking about that reminded me of Daniel in the Old Testament. The prophet Daniel, he has to live in the city of Babylon, far from God's people. And some wicked men, kind of like this psalm is talking about, they get the ear of the king. And they say, king, you should pass a law that people only pray to you. And the king goes along with this. Daniel, knowing he's only supposed to pray to God and honor him, how does he respond when he sees there's a government order he has to pray to the king? Well, when Daniel knew that document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. He continues serving God. He knew God. He knew God was his comfort, so he persisted in obeying him. And what does he do in particular? Well, he's praying and he's giving thanks before God, which is another way that our psalmist here responds to God's word of comfort, is that he praises God. He praises God. Verse 62 tells us that when the psalmist rises in the middle of the night, that's what he does. He praises and thanks God. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. When the hour is dark, he turns to prayer, even when he's alone. Yes, we gather together here on Sunday morning and sing, and that's wonderful. But as Matthew Henry said, public worship will not excuse us from secret worship. God calls us to worship him whether we're here or whether we are at home. And even in the dark moments of the night, we are called to praise God. My mind often thinks in Bible stories, this idea of praising God at midnight. There was something about that that struck me, and then I remembered Paul and Silas in the New Testament. Paul and Silas are in prison in the city of Philippi. Acts 16 says that the jailer received an order. He put them in the inner prison. He fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were worshiping God. Now, there were other people around. The other prisoners were listening, but they were still worshiping God in that moment. They'd received comfort from knowing God's word, and they responded in praise. So this is our response to God's comfort. We know God. We obey him. We do what he says. We praise him. But in all this, we don't have to do it alone. All three of those, knowing God, obeying him, praising him, it's not just something you have to do. It's something that we can do together. We can take these actions with his, with God's people, with his people. Verse 63 pictures the love and loyalty between those who follow God. They are true friends and companions. He says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. We do not follow God alone especially if you're tied in here, if you're a member of this church. We are a church family, brothers and sisters in Christ pursuing God. That's why it's important to get connected to a church so that you're able to have others who will help you 
follow the Lord. We should want to travel with those who are on the same journey because they'll help us arrive to our destination. If you decide to take a car trip and you pull out and you see somebody who's heading to Canada, but you want to go to Florida, you shouldn't follow that person. You will end up in a very different location. But if you see somebody else who's heading down south, oh, well, that's somebody that you want to get behind. That's the benefit we can have with brothers and sisters in Christ. We can share the experience of knowing God's comfort and responding to his comfort with our brothers and sisters. I think that's what's also happening in verse 64. It's together they are crying out for God's steadfast, unfailing love, mercy, and goodness. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. There are many following you, so God, teach me your statutes. Another place we see that phrase is in Psalm 33. The word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. That is who God is. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. We see evidence of God's love in the hearts and minds of people around the world. And so together we can seek to follow him. As I shared earlier, there was some of us who we were on the other side of the world just last week. So having just come from the other side of the world, let me assure you that God is faithfully followed even there. I'll give you three examples of that. I just have the one picture though. This picture is from one of the schools that we went to. Um, I can't speak for the rest of the team, but I think most of the team would say this was our favorite school that we went to. And the reason it was our favorite is because the students there were so full of joy. They jumped and cheered when we arrived. They, they were just happy we were there to spend time with them. And then they were so happy they gathered together with no real, maybe an adult suggested it, but together they started singing songs of praise to God. That's what they're doing now. They just gathered into a circle and started singing songs of praise out of their love for the Lord. That was such an encouragement and blessing to our team to see that. And they were all different kinds of students. In fact, the one leading the praise was a, a young lady who had to use uh, crutches to get around. But the other students just loved her, let her lead the songs, and they rejoiced in praise together. God is faithful around the world. We also spoke one day to refugees, those who had to flee their home because of, of suffering, more often political violence. And so they were living in the city we were in, and they were just kind of stuck there waiting to see where they were going next. And I was expecting people who were broken and run down, hostile to God. And instead we sit down and they ask me some of the deepest questions about the Bible that I've heard in a long time. These are people who are reading God's word, who love God and are hungry to know more of him. We saw God's faithfulness around the world. And then uh, briefly at the very beginning of the week, when we encouraged the missionaries who were living in that city, we threw a 4th of July party for them. We got to see all of these people who live there, who have given their lives so that, to serve in that area so that more people would know God. In all of these areas, we saw God's faithfulness. We saw his people knowing him, obeying him, praising him, even on the other side of the world. And I hope that that is a message of comfort for you as well. This is the comfort God gives us. Yes, we see it in the world around us, but we know it through his word. He provides comfort to us when we're suffering. He provides comfort to us even when we think the world is against us. When you are alone, when it seems no one cares, 
the comfort of his word can speak to you there. And the, the action he calls you to is first and foremost to know him, to turn from sin, believe in him. If you have not done so, I would encourage you to do that today. Know God through Jesus Christ. He is the only one who provides the way to this true lasting comfort. He also inspires us to obey him and to praise him, which we don't have to do alone, but with his people, his church. And that last instruction that we praise God, why don't we do that now? Let's praise him for his word of comfort because he is worthy.